0: Welcome to the Riverside Church podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 is where we are this morning. It's only a brand new series uh, that will take roughly seven weeks because there are seven churches that uh, the Lord addresses, the resurrected Christ addresses Uh, In the book of Revelation. So, we are not going through the entirety of Revelation uh, just yet. I don't know when or if I will do that, but maybe some point in in my history here we'll end up doing that. Uh, But for now, we're going to stick to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and this morning particularly. Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. That's the text uh, that I just read to you um, a second ago. What are some of the first things that come to mind when you think about the book of Revelation? what are some of the first things that come to mind? I, I know if you uh, cut your teeth around here growing up, or um, if you've been here sometime between the late 70s and early ladies, 80s, you have, you have something to think about the, the, the book of Revelation, don't you? There's a lot of talk about the book of Revelation, especially during that time. Some good talk about the, the book of Revelation. I'm not uh, knocking that at all. Uh, but Revelation is much more than pestilence and famine and wars and Rumors of wars and trying to figure out where this country fits into that or this or the other. Uh, there is some of that. To be certain, there is pestilence and famine and wars and turmoil and all these things we see in the book of Revelation. But something I want to make sure we don't miss, that Revelation is a, is, is a word of hope, that the gospel will go out and the mission of God will be completed and God's people will be saved. It's clear Christ is, was, and shall be victorious. Revelation reveals a glorious picture of a resurrected Christ and a glorious picture of a restored earth with peace, tears, and suffering being wiped away and suffering ceasing. This is what we see in the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a book of hope. It's, it's meant for churches here and now to gain hope and comfort and, 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 and courage as we face an uncertain world. We see that one thing is certain is that Jesus is victorious and his church and his kingdom will be standing in the final day. Something we see in the beginning of the book of Revelation, as we will see this morning as Jesus gives his his final revelation as the canon is closed out in the book of Revelation, it begins revealing the heart of Jesus for his churches, and we see that in the seven letters given to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So this morning, we will consider the first of those letters uh, the, was the first of those letters, the Church of Ephesus. Now, let's take a quick portrait of the, the Church of Ephesus. You've probably heard of it before if you've read the book of Acts. If not, you can read the book of Acts and see some more about the Church of Ephesus. There's even a letter written to the Ephesian church. Let me tell you a few things about this city. Ephesus was a wealthy and prosperous city. It was known for its temple of, for Artemis. Uh, some call it Diana, but in Greek or Roman. The city was located on the Aegean Sea, so I'm I'm told I can see on a map, and was accessible to large ships via its, via its harbor. And it was also accessible by land, so accessible by sea and land. You can imagine it was a commercial center and a cultural center. The Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, was a place of idolatry and sensuality, but also a place of employment and a place of culture. Ephesus was considered a, if you were to speak of it in today's terms, a world-class city. And it was this city that the church of Ephesus was located in. It's this city that Paul spent two-plus years in. We read in Acts chapter 19, I won't read there this morning, but for further study you can write that down and maybe go read about it uh, this afternoon or later this week. So Acts chapter 19, we read about Ephesus, that Paul was there for two some years, and the word of the Lord, the Bible says in, in Acts chapter 19 and 20, the word of the Lord increased in Ephesus and prevailed mightily. So you can imagine what they saw in their day and time. This commercial city, this cultural city, this very religious city saw the word of God advance in that city like never before. It's the word of God that was prevailing. It was even the local economy was wrecked because people began to believe in the one true God instead of worshiping the idols of the temple of Artemis. Maybe you remember in Acts the the man named Demetrius. They were very ticked off. Because they built idols and they made a lot of wealth, the Bible says, off of these idols. And as people began to trust in Jesus, Demetrius lost a lot of work and they wanted to get the missionaries out of there because it was wrecking their economy because the word of God prevailed so mightily in Ephesus. It was the church of Ephesus that brought Paul down to the shores in Acts chapter 20, you remember this, and they prayed over Paul before they left. And the elders of the church loved him so much that they began to weep over Paul because they knew that they might not ever see him again. It was a church that was loved by the people of the day that saw the word of God prevail mightily. Paul even warned before he left, and they cried and prayed over him to take care of this flock because wolves would come in, that Christ has obtained you with his own precious blood. Paul told them, God, Christ loves you. He loves you. And so this church was some 40 years old. Keep this in mind, that the next generation had risen up. I want to kind of clue you into some of my thinking or With the Bible showing us here as we go through this, that this beautiful church that we see was now some 40 years old going into a new generation. And a new generation had risen up by the time the Lord is addressing this church. And so maybe start thinking application. How will the gospel, how will the good news of Christ uh, be be passed on, the baton be passed from one generation to another? The next. And so that's a, a quick portrait of the Church of Ephesus that we see in the Scripture. Now, now a word about these letters. So there's seven letters. Let me briefly tell you how these are lined out because the sermon outline will be roughly the same over the next seven weeks because they're addressed in similar ways. You can break this down in different ways, but let me give you a basic outline. So we see the quick portrait of the church at Ephesus. Now, let me give you a quick portrait of the structure of these letters. We won't talk about this every week, but let me go ahead and, and tell you as we introduce this section of Scripture. Generally speaking, that the first thing you'll see in these letters, Revelation 1 has given us a portrait of Jesus. We'll return there in a moment and towards the end of the sermon this morning. As Revelation chapter 2 opens up with these seven letters, the first thing you'll see as these churches are addressed is who Jesus is. It will echo Revelation chapter 1, this picture of the resurrected Christ. So we see who Jesus is, we see who we are, or who that church is, some things that the Lord notices about this church, some things he sees in that church. So, who Jesus is, who the church is, then you'll see some sort of warning or correction what's gone wrong, What, what are they struggling with. So, who Jesus is, who you are, what's going on in that church how to correct that, and then some sort of promise or exhortation. If you repent, we'll see this morning, then you will have these blessings that the Lord has promised. So that's the basic structure. Who Jesus is, who we are, the church is, what's the issue, what's the solution, what's the promise, that's the general flow. So, to the church at Ephesus, the Bible says, Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus Right. Or to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, write the word of him who holds the seven stars. Who's the him who holds the seven stars? This is the picture of Christ, okay? Like I told you, these letters would start. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. What, what are the seven stars? Look up one verse earlier. Revelation chapter 1, verse twenty. We're told, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now there's some debate, does this mean those particular churches had angels as we know them? That can also be translated to messengers. It could be talking about the pastor or the elder that was over the church, the messenger of the church. Either way, he's writing to these churches and the one who is over those churches So the seven stars are the angels or the messengers who walk among the seven golden lampstands. What are the seven lampstands? Chapter 1, verse 20, the seven churches. And so that's what we're talking about here to get some of our terms straight. So we see this picture of Christ who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then he says, I know your works. So what's the picture of Christ that he wants this church at Ephesus to see? What is this picture of Christ that he wants the church at Riverside to see in 2022? Here are some things that are pointed out about Christ. One, this is all present tense. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. That God is presently holding the stars, the messengers of those churches. He is holding his people in the hollow of his hands. He cares for us. He holds the whole world in his hand as the old, old song we used to sing. He holds the world in his hands, but he holds us in his hands. Isn't that a glorious picture that you are held in the hollow of his hand? Get this picture of Christ Church at Riverside. Get this picture of Christ Church at Ephesus. He holds you in the hollow of his hands and present tense. Look at this. I kind of underline he holds. He walks among the seven golden lampstands that not only does Christ hold us. Get this picture of this resurrected Christ who's seated at the right hand of the Father. He still holds us. He's still active. He walks among us. He walks with his people. He is actively moving among us and with us. He's like the good shepherd, leading and guiding and walking us to still pastures, to, to quiet pastures and still streams. He's with us. He's walking with us, church, at Ephesus. Isn't that glorious? The resurrected Christ who conquered sin and death, he holds you and he walks with you. That's good news. Get this picture. That's where it starts with a picture of the resurrected Christ. That's where the book of Revelation starts. That's where these letters start. That's where we must start as a church. The picture of Christ, he holds, he walks. And look at this he knows, he knows. He knows your works. He knows us to the bottom of us. And He loves us anyway. How about that? He said earlier that I love you. I love you. I, I bought you with my precious blood. I hold you. I walk among you. And, and I know you. I know your struggles. I know your hurts. I know those dark, hidden things in the recesses of your heart. And I know them. I want to draw them out of you so that you find healing. I, I know you. And I love you. And what's more, we don't see this directly, but at least indirectly and clearly in this section, not only does he hold us and walk among us and and knows us, he speaks to us. How about that? We have a God who speaks. We have a God who makes himself known to us. We have a God who has revealed himself and told this church and tells us today. He doesn't leave us guessing Here's what I desire. Here's the the way to the tree of life. Here's the way of salvation. Here's the way of, of, of grace. Here's the way to glory. He speaks to us. Isn't that glorious? What a glorious picture of Christ. He holds us. He walks among us. He knows us. He speaks to us. John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. What a picture of Christ. I know your works. Now a picture this generation later, some 40 years later, as we saw in Acts chapter 19, 20, at least I mentioned to you where Ephesus was and what Ephesus looked like in the days of Paul before he left. Now this next generation has risen up. And before we get to that, we see the picture of Christ. And now who are they? We have the picture of Christ now. Let's get a picture of the church at Ephesus. Look at Back in verse 2 of chapter 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now let's consider this again. Ephesus. Here's a picture of Ephesus. It was an enormous and influential church, more than likely. The whole region was probably impacted by the ministry of this church. It's where Apollos preached. As I said a second ago, it was where Paul spent years. Timothy, T- Timothy ministered in this church, and history even tells us that John himself ministered here and had an enormous reputation and had some famous ministers over the years, right? This was the first church of whatever city you're, you're in. It has the famous ministers, it, it has the longevity, it, it, it has the looks of everything you may, may desire in, in, in a local congregation, at least for what meets the eye, right? They weren't a flash in the pan, they had been around a while. And listen to how they're described. They work. They work. They strive for the gospel. Do you see what it says? I know your works. They're not a lazy church by any means, in fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells them that he showed them how to do hard gospel work, and that they labored for the gospel, they strove together for the gospel, they work, and do you see how how, how it's described? Not only do they work, but they toil. Have you ever toiled? You've, you've worked before, but you've probably experienced something where you toiled, right? That's different from work. That's where work is difficult, that's where you come up against all sorts of obstacles. That's where you go to change the oil in the car, but then it spills everywhere, and then you got to clean it up, and then it's just a mess, and nothing goes as planned. You go to cut the grass, and the lawnmower breaks, and you got to fix the blade. you got to change the spark plug, and, and everything, you, you toiled at that point. Work becomes difficult, and they even did the difficult work. Even when it became strenuous, they remained diligent. They were consistent. And listen to what it says, your toil and you, your patient endurance. They were patient. They were likely slow to anger. They patiently, I don't know about you, but when work turns to toil, patience and long suffering is probably the first thing that goes out the door before something goes flying across the yard. Amen? Amen? They patiently endure. They resist evil. You cannot bear with those who are evil. There was no place for evil among them, they were serious about holiness. They upheld the doctrinal purity. Do you see what it says here? But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and have not found and and are not and found them to be false. They were knowledgeable and they were doctrinally sound. They were orthodox and they would even test apostles to see if what they were preaching or what they were teaching was true. Back if you keep reading down, it should, should it say down when you read Revelation chapter 2, 6, it says, You even hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're not exactly sure what was going on with the Nicolaitans, but their teaching was leading to some immorality, whatever that might be. You're you're even privy to that. You don't fall for that false teaching. You're orthodox. You are doctrinally pure. You're discerning in your understanding of the Scriptures, and you do so with great persistence, and it says you don't even grow weary in that. And listen to this and you bear up look at look at the middle of verse 3 this one's really something and you are enduring patiently and bearing up why do you see it for my name's sake and you have not grown weary i don't know about you but if i if i stop there and read that letter i'm thinking these guys got it going right this is this is the kind of church where when they need a minister like people are putting their resumes in there right I mean, because they're patient, they're enduring, like you want to be there. I mean, they're, they're doctrinally pure, they're sound and all, oh, look at this, for the sake of his name. What could possibly be wrong? Like th- these are all, the. it looks healthy, right? I, I, I know I used the social media illustration last week and I probably got the most feedback of that than I got in anything in a long time. But that, that's okay, I'm going to use the social media illustration again. All right, I'm not mad at social media. It has things are blessings and curses and they can be used for a lot of good things. So I'm not knocking it, right? But here's the thing. You, you've been on social media before and, and, and you see someone post something and, um, it, about a, a relationship or something in their life or whatever it might be or, or someone, a husband writes a long a sappy letter to his wife and I'm thinking, dude, like she's in the next room. Just tell that to her. I don't need to know that about your relationship, right? Have you seen that before? Like, just tell her. She's right there. Are you doing that for you or are you doing that for, for her at this point? Like, what's the deal? And, and then you see the way they interact with each other. Like, dude, I'm not really sure if you really mean that or if you're just trying to paint a picture of who you are so that you look the part so that we don't need to, like, help you out a little bit or whatever it might be. So, so, so there's always these, these false facades that go up on so, social media. I'm not wrong about that, right? You've seen that before. I'm not knocking it all together. But it looks the parts. It looks the part. It, it, it looks really good on Instagram. It's picture perfect from what it seems. It's a wonderful church from all practical purposes and even all for the sake of your, his name. Verse 4, there's a problem. But none of those things are bad. Those are, all, those are what you want to be striving after, by the way. But what's the problem? I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. But I have this against you, let's read that again that you have abandoned the love you had at first. How could this happen? Doing all the right things. And maybe even think about this personally as well. We're thinking of this as the Scripture is revealing in, in terms of a local church, but if we, you're part of the church, so you have to think of this about, about your own life as well. How could this be? It could happen in a million different ways that we lose the love that we once had for Christ or we lose the love that we once had for His church or for His name. We do it for the sake of His name, but it's for the love of His name. Think about when... Jesus confronts Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. Remember, Peter had denied Christ, and he meets Peter there on on the beach, and he's asking him some questions, and the questions he asks Peter, do you remember this, is, not Peter, do you have boldness? Do you have courage? Do you have orthodoxy? Are you ready to toil and patiently adore? Yes, he he needs to, He needs to do those things. Those those are all all essential. But Jesus puts his finger on the heart of it. So the heart of Peter. Peter, why did why did you deny? Why wh- wh- what happened? And that's what Jesus is doing here to the church at Ephesus and to our hearts. and the church at Riverside, He's putting His finger on it and saying, "Do you love Me?" He asked Peter that three times. Do do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Ephesus had enjoyed so much, but the question remained. Do you love me? Imagine if you remember at the church at Ephesus and you heard this, I'd immediately think, of course we love you. Don't, you. don't you see what we do? Don't you see our works? Don't you see our biblical fidelity? Don't you see our hard work? But the Lord sees to the heart And remember this picture of the Lord. He walks among us. He sees and he he knows and he asks the question, do you love me? Do you love me? He sees our works. He sees our doctrine. But he also sees our hearts. And think about it. What do you talk about after leaving church or throughout your week? Isn't it great that we have orthodox teaching? I I hope so. Isn't it great that that the budget's being met, that people are working hard. Yes, I hope so. People are helping each other out. They're visiting one another, looking out for one another. Yes, I hope so. Those are great. But do we look at each other and say, oh, doesn't Jesus love us so much? Isn't it amazing how much Jesus loves us? Isn't it amazing to him who loves us and he's freed us From our sins by his blood. Oh, how he loves us. Jesus desires that for his church to do it all out of love that the Bible says it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's the love of Christ that compels us. We love him because he first loved us. When we behold the love of Christ, then we go in the love of Christ, and yes, these things will follow. Remember what we observed earlier. This another generation, this next generation is rising up in the church at Ephesus. This new generation continued to do, likely, a lot of the same things and a lot of the same good things, but their heart was no longer burning with love for Jesus. Jesus says, but this I have against you. This is what you have fallen from. You've abandoned the love you've had at first. And it's so perplexing, isn't it? Because it even says they were doing it all for his name's sake. But isn't it true we can protect an institution, we can continue to do right things without love? We can still look like we care about someone by doing all the right things, but have not love. Even Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Perhaps you've heard it read at a wedding before. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So he's telling this church at Ephesus, you can do a lot without love. You can look a certain way without love, so get the application here, church. And for myself and yourself, the church can pass the baton to the next generation to do the next things in a multiplicity of ways, but don't just think because we do the same things that our heart for Jesus is still burning with love. Perhaps you've seen this in your own life, in the timeline of a local church. You begin in the first generation and you realize you have to reach people with the gospel. You have to go tell them about Christ. If you want people to come to Christ and, and, and come to church and be discipled, you have to go tell them. And when you're planning a church, there's that excitement, and then you move from that excitement to an institutionalism. Now we've got to keep the thing going, and so we start doing the same activities, the same discipleship things, but our heart for Christ has grown cold. And Paul, I mean, uh, Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus, your, your love has grown cold. Don't stay like that. Don't stay like that. Verse five, here's the plan for it. He doesn't stop there. Praise God, right? You're cold. Good luck. There's a way forward. Verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Isn't this a simple way forward? I love when the Bible gives us like, these, these practical steps. You, you see the steps here? Remember. Remember from where you are fallen. Isn't there a great power in remembering? I think about it with my own marriage and relationship when I like to remember things we've done together. Trips we've gone on together. Meals we've shared together. Don't you remember when we went to here and the time we had? Doesn't that have a way of just invigorating your love for one another? Remember when we did this. Remember that time that we had that makes your heart burn with passion. And that's what Jesus said. Remember where you have fallen. Remember what that was like Remember not only the things you did, but how your heart burned with passion for Christ. And do you you see the next thing is repent. Turn from that. Go in the other direction. That's what repentance means. Repentance doesn't mean moping in the corner. Repentance means turning and going the other way. So stop going that way, the way of coldness, and let's go the way of love. Remember, repent, and redo. Do the works you did it first. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The works might look similar. We might not change a lot, church, at Ephesus, of what your weekly schedule looks like, but when it's done with love, everything will change. Everything will be different. Even those activities may seem the same. A lot can look exactly the same, but completely different when it's not done with the right heart, or it's just done because of things we've done in in the past. Let me give you one more illustration. I was thinking about this the other day. I have these pictures that I I saved from social media um, on my phone uh, that my grandma posted at some point. And as of my family, long before I was born, um, they used to go on vacation to Littlewoods. Anybody ever seen that before? I don't think it's even there anymore. It's in New Orleans East. So they vacationed in New Orleans East on Lake Pontchartrain, mind you, right? And so there they were. They would rent a camp, no AC, nothing from what I'm told, a dock that goes out in the water. They would crab and and do whatever you do out there. And so, uh, there, there's these pictures and you can imagine there's a table. It's black and white and there's these big piles of eaten crabs on the table and, and other things on the table as well. And, and there are like, uh, these shirtless men just sitting around the table, probably haven't showered in days and, uh, they're, they're not going for, for Instagram, right? That's just what they were doing, right? And so they're sitting around the table. There's, uh, they're sweating. They've probably been fishing and, it looks like they're having a pretty good time. Now, if you ask them, I don't know if they, how good of a time they had. But, but but I look at something like that, and then I, I watch, like, PBS. You ever watch PBS? And they have these old shows about old New Orleans and things like that. I'm like, man, my family was, like, doing the New Orleans cultural thing. That was, like, a thing to do that. They were living the culture, the things that they were doing, the crab boils, Littlewoods, the camp, and all this thing. That picture that you see, was who they are, Right? That was you know, coming out of, of the heart of who they are. Sometimes I wonder, I'm thinking in terms of culture here, about New Orleans culture. We still have crab boils and we still get hampers of crabs and, and crawfish, but but sometimes it doesn't feel the same, right? Because you're just doing it because the last generation did it, not because you want to go relax and have fun and, and do whatever you, you do and, and just enjoy that local culture. You start doing things just because we've done them in the past and it doesn't feel the same and you're kind of upset because it doesn't feel the same, but what has changed is your heart for those things that you're just doing them because it's a cultural thing and not necessarily something that you desire and want to do, right? And so it goes with the church. We, we can do a lot of the same things. We have to, have to ask Christ, give me the heart of love. Help me to do this out of the love of Christ, not just because I think it's what we need to do, what our culture calls for, what our church calls for. Maybe it will look the same, but God, let me do it out of a heart of love. Here's the warning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will remove that church. I will remove the influence that you have in that culture. I will remove you. I will be done with you if it's not done out of love. No matter how orthodox or hardworking or whatever, if it's not done without it, if you don't repent of this, I'll remove your lampstand unless you repent. Unless you turn from this. And there's this great promise, right? Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear. It ends with a promise. To this, what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Notice one more thing in this promise in verse 7. It's to the churches, plural. He's writing to a specific church, but this is for the churches of Revelation. I believe this is for the churches of here and now. He who has an ear, let him hear what Christ is proclaiming to this church at Ephesus. With this warning comes the promise. If you repent and turn again to the Lord, if you repent from just doing these things for culture or whatever else, if you repent and turn to the Lord, and if you behold Christ, get your eyes on Christ, Your heart for Christ, your love for Christ will burn. And you'll eat from the tree of life. You'll enjoy eternal life. You will be more than conquerors. You will conquer. What is the way of conquering? What is the way of conquering? We are more than conquerors. Romans chapter 8. Through him who loves us. We get our eyes on Christ. This is how Revelation starts. Repent, turn, get your eyes on Christ and you will enjoy the paradise of God. You will enjoy eternal life. What is this picture of Christ? Look at Revelation chapter one, verse five. How will our heart burn for Christ? How will our love increase, our affections increase for Christ? Behold the picture of Christ, Revelation one, five. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Get your eyes on Christ is what he's saying. Listen to how he's described. I turned to see, here's where we're going to end. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. John's speaking here of Christ and I, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, the churches, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, the one like the Son of Man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. He's, he's priest. He's king. The hairs of his head were We're white like white wool. He's wise. He's the ancient of days. He has all wisdom, all power, all glory this resurrected Christ does. He's drawing from Daniel at this point. It's like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes are piercing. He sees everything. His feet were like burnished bronze. He walks among us and he is stable. He is strong refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. He has a powerful voice. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. He is powerful. He is righteous. He is glorious. And this resurrected Christ, brothers and sisters, he loves us. He loves us. This is glorious. Verse 17, chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet though dead. Wouldn't you too? If you saw a picture of the resurrected Christ and realized that you are a sinner and realized my, my love for you is failing. I'm doing it, but I'm, I'm going to burn out someday because I'm just doing this to do it. My lo- I don't remember that love that I once had whether it's in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, when you're in college, whenever, it, I don't remember that love. So I fell, he's, ancient. he's wise, he's, he sees everything, he knows the depths of my heart, he knows my love for him is, is flickering at most on some days. So I fell at his feet as though dead in worship. I'm undone, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He lays his hand on our shoulder and says, lift up your head, weary sinner, And fear not. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but I've dealt with that. I know the depths of you, but I love you anyway. I know your heart is flickering at most, but I love you. Chapter one, verse five, to him who loves us, puts his hand on our shoulder, he's freed us from our sins by his blood. And he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God search us to the depths. And may we realize he loves us to the heights. And may we love him because he has first loved us. Let's pray.